Hello everyone, welcome back to ERP Talks. I am Khaled Suleiman. Today we are thrilled to have Eric Kimberling with us, a leading figure in digital transformation and the CEO of Third Stage Consulting Group. We are set to dive deep into the world of ERP, so let's get started. Eric, welcome to our podcast. We are thrilled to have you join us and we are so grateful that you accepted our invitation. Well, thank you, Khaled. Very good to meet you again and to be part of the podcast. So thank you for inviting me. Okay, so let's start. Eric, can you tell us more about your journey, the ERP consulting, uh, third stage, how all of this happened and, and how all of this started? Sure. Well, I, I began my career in ERP consulting in the late 90s, and I would love to tell you that it was all part of my plan to become an ERP consultant, but it was not at all my plan. Um, I was hired by one of the big, uh, the big four consulting firms, uh, big five at the time uh, in the late 90s, once I graduated business school. So I had um, just completed my master's degree. And uh, prior to completing my master's degree, the year prior or the second year of my master's degree, I, I took an internship um, sort of by accident. It just sounded interesting. It was an internship with a manufacturing company that was re-engineering their business processes as part of a, an Oracle implementation. And I thought that sounds fun. I love process for engineering. I like supply chain. I like strategy. So I thought that'd be a fun project. So I learned a lot about Oracle implementations, ERP implementations, but also, you know, the business side of things, the operations, the organizational components. And then when I graduated with my master's degree, I was recruited by PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, in 1998. And um, I thought this is great. I can be a management consultant. It sounds like a lot of fun but I wanted to be a business consultant. I didn't want to be a technology consultant. In fact, I was trying very hard to steer away from technology because I wanted to do just strategy, supply chain operations improvement. So for the first year or two, I actually resisted the idea of being an ERP consultant pretty aggressively. I was trying hard not to be an ERP consultant. I wanted to be you know, more on the business side. But what I quickly realized is that um, you can't separate the two. You know, You have to be both. You have to understand technology, but you also have to understand business. So I, I started to probably two or three years in my career really started to embrace the technology um, piece of it along with the business piece of it. So, um, so then as I, once I've stopped fighting it and just learned to enjoy it, um, it became very enjoyable. I started to love it. And so, um, it, so that's how it, that's how it all started. And then of course, early in my career, I found that there's a lot of biases in the industry. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, sales driven um, activity that was sort of undermining the success of clients, not intentionally, but because companies are trying to sell big software vendors are trying to sell big ERP systems to big companies and the big companies weren't succeeding in those projects largely because um, they were focused too much on the technology. So I, I had this idea early on in my career about having an independent tech agnostic consulting firm, but um, I was, a, I was in my twenties, so it was a little too early for me to start a consulting firm. But by the time I was in my thirties, I decided I would start one. So I started my previous company back in 2005. Um, as a tech agnostic firm. Um, and then the ownership changed a little bit uh, throughout, you know, after I started that company and I left that company in 2018 to start third stage consulting. So um, that's how I became more of an independent tech agnostic consultant within the ERP space. Okay. So your, your first company also was an ERP company. Yes, uh, it was. You're doing implementations, which, which software? Well, the first 
So the first company I started was independent as well. So it was tech agnostic. We did a lot of uh, mainly software selection. We did a little bit of digital strategy. Mm. Um, I would start to do a little bit of expert witness. We did some process work, some change management, um, but mostly focused on the selection piece of it. But when we when I started third stage, I wanted it to be more holistic and focus not just on evaluation and selection of software, but also implementation from a tech agnostic perspective. So since 2005, um, I have not been affiliated with any one software vendor. It's been it's been a lot. Of, it's been SAP. It's been Oracle. It's been Microsoft, um, NetSuite, Epicor, Infor, all the all the big names that you recognize in the in the market. That's I've worked with all those systems you know, since 2005. This is really cool <laughs> because you have worked with multiple ERP softwares. Uh, so uh, my whole experience with SAP, even S4HANA or SAP Business One. But yeah. work with the other, uh, and now I understand why you take this approach. Um, you have this experience. You you work with everything on the market, so right. uh, uh, that's that's really sounds cool. So the next question: I know that digital transformation and the ERP and the uh, software systems, it's a challenging. It's it's not that easy. So mm-hmm. tell us more about those challenges and how these are affecting the future right now. Because everybody is moving to the digitalization. So yeah. what is the challenging, in your opinion? The most challenging part of ERP and digital projects. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it. That's a good question. And by the way, just to add to something you said, I actually started. I didn't mention this in your last question, but I started my career doing just SAP projects. So I was doing. Um, R3. Okay. That's how that's how long ago it was. It was SAP R3, and uh, I was certified in SAP right out of out of business school. So I was doing, um, yeah. I said for the first two years it was all SAP work. So I know the product really well. I've obviously done a lot of uh, ECC and now S4 HANA and a little bit of Business One, but a lot of S4 HANA type of projects as well. Um, but I think the you know the hardest part with these sorts of projects is that um, first I think the one of the biggest things is organizations have unrealistic expectations of what the project is going to entail. So they might get an overly optimistic proposal from a software vendor, or they might get a proposal from a vendor that doesn't have accurate assumptions around, you know, how, how fast the client can move. So they end up with these unrealistic expectations early on. And that oftentimes leads to problems later on where there's, there's downside risk and that sort of thing, or, or bad decisions get made. Um, the other thing is, uh, the other big problem I think organizations have is has nothing to do with the technology. It has to do with internal misalignment. So they don't have a clear vision of what they're trying to accomplish with, say, an SAP S4HANA implementation. Product's great, right? S4HANA can do a lot of good stuff. It's a very powerful tool. Um, but if you don't know what you want to do with it, if you don't have a clear vision of what it is you're trying to accomplish and also what you want to be as an organization, what are you trying to be when you grow up? That's the stuff that takes time. It takes uh, It slows down the project. It adds to the risk of the project. But so many organizations will just try to power through that or sort of ignore that and just go implement S4HANA, for example, without figuring out what is it we want to be? What do we want our future state to look like? And of course, S4HANA, the functionality or any ERP system is going to provide an input to help you define what you could be in the future. But if you don't really know, like, how are we going to consolidate these functions or are we going to move to a standard operating model or more of a flexible decentralized model? You have to make these fundamental decisions and clarify that stuff before you start implementing technology or else it doesn't matter how well you manage the project, you're just going to run into trouble. So I'd say 
the the internal misalignment and then the unrealistic expectations are probably the two biggest things. And then the third one I'd add, which is sort of related to the second one, is uh, organizational change management. Just making sure that you are able to to navigate the human resistance that inevitably happens during a project like this. A hundred percent with you, especially the uh, expectations. Okay, so let's move to another question and. This question, I have this question from a lot of business owners. They say, when I should put an investment on ERP system, especially here in the United States, you know, the SMEs, I'm, I'm because this is my, my focus, uh, they are using QuickBooks. They are happy. They, they are, so when should, as a business owner, I realize that, no, now I need an ERP software. Well, I think the minute you start to recognize that you your inefficient processes are multiplying, you're, you're starting to see a lot more uh, broken processes, a lot more manual processes, reworking or re-entry of data. Once you start to see that sort of problem proliferate throughout the organization, that's a good t- that's a good indicator that your technology is outdated. Um, you don't want to wait too long, obviously, because if you wait until the entire operations are are redundant or inefficient, then that, that's going to be a big, it's going to be harder to change later on. So the sooner you can get ahead of that, the, act, the easier it actually is to, to address. Otherwise you wait 20 years or whatever it is. It's that's really, that's a big jump now to go from what you had 20 years ago to current modern day technology. That's a huge jump and it's really risky. So if you can be more incremental and just keep up with the changes, that's ideal. Um, I'd also say that another reason why organizations should move sooner than later is the technology is moving so fast. I mean, the pace of change is just accelerating. So the, the more you wait, the more you're not just getting me, if you wait a year, you're not just getting a year behind. It's actually exponentially more than that because technology is speeding up. It's, it's moving faster yeah. than one year of time and then, you know, as, as time goes on. So those are some of the big things. I, I think you do want to, you want to have a sense of urgency, but you also want to be really deliberate and, and measured and pace yourself too. So I, I think it's a, it's a balancing act. You want to move fast. You want to address technical debt, um, look at those inefficiencies and find ways to use technology to fix it. But you don't necessarily want to jump in and change too much all at once. Sometimes for some organizations, they need to go slower, a little bit more measured, a little bit more incremental. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But as long as you're making some progress and uh, trying to stay, uh, keep up or get ahead of where, you know, where the competition is. Okay. So let's say I realized that I need an ERP. Now I am taking a decision. Which ERP should I put all of that money? You know, ERP systems, it's not that, it's not that cheap. It's not affordable right. at some point. So in your, in your opinion, is there like an assessment? Is there like an, a criteria of choosing the software, the vendor? Yeah. I mean, first you want to look at what pool of options are best suited for your organization. And usually you're going to base that based on the industry you're in and the size of your organization. You know, if you're a, for example, if you're a big multinational uh, manufacturer of widgets, then S4 HANA is probably one of those options. You would want to look at something like an S4 HANA or maybe Oracle Fusion, maybe Microsoft E365, but, you know, without getting too far into the weeds of different vendors, um, you know, you, you, you narrow the field based on who you are. If you're a smaller Say you're a small or mid-sized manufacturer with just one or two locations, and you're not global. You don't have really, um, you don't really have really complex business needs. Um, then maybe you look at an SAP Business One or an Oracle NetSuite or something like that. So you know you want to first look at who you are and sort of what 
based on where you are in the market, what are the best shortlist options? And that way you don't have to go, there's no need for you to go out and send RFPs, RFIs out to 50 different vendors because chances are pretty high. There's only, you know, no matter who you are, there's probably only maybe at the high end, five to 10 really good options for you. And so you want to start off by narrowing the field as quickly as you can and get to those options. And then from there, you know, narrow it down to three as quick as you can. Once you get to three, then that's where um, that's where you can go into deeper dive demos. You can do the RFP process. You can, you know, use a, other outside objective data to help you arrive at a decision. So I think that's probably the biggest, you know, some of the best advice I can give. And the way to do that too is to also make sure you have your business requirements clearly defined. You know, understanding what you need, what your priorities are, and really have a good understanding, good vision of what it is you want from your ERP system. That's going to make your evaluation a lot more effective and efficient too. That's also really a very good answer, but stay. I'm 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 acting as a business owner. I have a lot of questions. So sure. <laughs> let's say now I know which ERP, but now there is another challenges. ERP implementation is is complex. So do you think that should we hire a company like Third Stage Consulting to to handle the whole process? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm biased, of course. So take you know, take this with a caveat that I am the owner of a company that is independent, technology agnostic. So of course, I believe that it's there's a lot of value in any organization in hiring a technology agnostic firm. And the reason that is is because our job is not to replace or compete with vendors that provide technology specific solutions. So in other words, we're never going to be an S4 HANA specialist or a you know an Oracle Fusion specialist or Microsoft D365 specialist. We're not going to specialize or have a bench of people that specialize in any one system. We have a lot of experience with all those systems and other systems too. Don't, don't get me wrong. We understand the technology, but we're not, we're not going to be the ones that are sort of the wrench turners that go in and configure. We customize, we do all the integration. We partner with companies that do that, that are better at that than us. But I think, you, so we don't want to replace those people. We're not here to compete with organizations like yours or like other companies that, that specialize in that sort of stuff. Um, but where, where we add additional value is by providing sort of the the wraparound services and the wraparound competencies that are required on top of the deep technical experience on a specific solution. So program management, for example, uh, organizational change, the business process reengineering, the architecture and integration amongst multiple systems, if it's especially if it's a best of breed sort of environment or if there's legacy systems that are going to remain. Those are all services that, that we can provide in a tech agnostic way and you need that tech agnostic advisor to help you do things in an objective and unbiased way, rather than leading with how does the technology work and just looking within the box of what technology does. Um, here we look at, well, what are the business needs? And then let's reconcile, if there is a reconciliation to be had, let's reconcile business needs with the, the technological needs. And so having someone that's objective, tech agnostic, isn't getting commissioned on the software. We have no financial incentive to promote one product over another or one additional module or additional licensees over the other. We're not trying to sell software. And that allows us to be a little bit more focused and clear headed about what the real business needs are and helping the client from that perspective. So yes, I think companies like ours add tremendous value and can actually save you a lot of time and money longer term. So um, do you mean, just to make sure that I understand this 100%, uh, so do you mean that, um, let's say I'm company X, Y, and Z, and I, I, the company business cycle maybe needs some consultant to check uh, how is the 
business cycle, then uh, we consider that we need an ERP. So you will you will come to us. We will do we will do like some brainstorming, some meetings to to see how the business cycle. Then you will give us some uh, consultation to tell us, hey guys, you are not doing well uh, on the sales process. You are you are doing this in a correct way, this in a wrong way. Okay, is this is the let's say this is the foundation. Then we will move forward to the ERP. You will not implement, but you will like witness or act as a project manager with the vendor. Is that what you what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. We'll act as a. I'd say we'd act as a program manager. So the vendor is going to have their project managers, sort of the technical project managers. We're not replacing that mm-hmm. role, but in addition to having a technical project manager based specific to the software, you also need to have an organizational change manager, a, um, you know, a general process improvement manager, the architecture and data integration managers. So you have multiple project managers and we typically will fill the role of program manager that ties it all together. And then what we do is we'll provide, it's sort of like filling in the blanks. We go in and we help fill in the blanks of what the technology provider isn't good at or just doesn't do. So in other words, if it's like, uh, you know, just pure data migration and we need someone to really focus just on data migration while the technical implementer is doing the software design and build, then that, then we can fill that need. Same with change management, Ah. process improvement, et cetera. Mm. So it's, if you think of like an org chart of a project, you know, you've got the, um, the technical project manager here, but then you've got all these other work streams that may or may not be filled by internal resources or by the technical vendor. And then you've got a program manager to oversee the whole thing. And that's where we fit in is we'll fill in the program manager role and then we'll start to plug in the gaps, you know, throughout the project. Okay. So do you think um, SMEs or SAB Business One or Oracle NetSuite, those are small projects, I, I don't mean small, uh, but you know, Smaller. it's not like S4HANA. It's not right. like S4HANA. It's not like the big uh, ERP softwares. So do you think also those small projects needs this uh, as well, this service? Yeah, they do. It might be on a smaller scale. You know, it won't be as many hours. It may not be a full-time program manager or, or a full-time change manager or anything. But um, we generally, you know, we work with small companies. We work with really large companies too. So we scale those services up and down depending on what the needs are. And of course, if uh, every client's a little bit different, some clients have really strong program management uh, internal PMO capabilities, in which case maybe they don't need our PMO services. Uh, we could just be more of an advisor, you know, a subject matter expert to help them manage the project. Um, or, you know, they might have a really solid change team, a change management team, in which case we could just be an advisor to help not do all the actual work, but just advise them on doing the work. So there's different ways that we work with different companies based on their size, based on their internal competencies, and just based on what their needs are. So this is really interesting because, you know, most of the, I don't want to say failure implementation, but most of the um, failure implementation, <laughs> right? I believe it happened because this, the customer uh, don't have the enough uh, knowledge the, and have those expectations. And there is no, this person, this program manager, uh, it's my the first time to hear about this role, by the way. Right. But it's really interesting because most of the projects that happen, we are doing hundred percent what as a vendor every everything. But in the other side, you know, we are not on the same page. Right. Um, so I believe if and 
all the time I was thinking about that. What if there is a third party that can uh, understand our language and they are on the customer uh, side? So they can tell them, um, uh, they, can they can move forward on the project because every time, okay, we will hire a project manager, then the project manager didn't do his role. And as you know, at the, at the, at the end of the day, it's a failure implementation, if we right. can say that. Uh, or it will take, uh, it should take like two, three months. Now it's six months, one year. So I believe that, um, and also I saw some percentages on your website uh, talking about this, um, uh, like 80, most of 60%, I believe, uh, or 80% of the projects have this failure because there is no uh, program manager or something. So um, uh, I believe that, uh, ERP vendors should consider this in the methodology. I don't know, but they should, I don't know, they, they should ask the customer that they hire somebody or I don't know, but th this is important because a lot of time, a lot of money um, is wasted because of uh, we are not on the same page. And what do you think about that? <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. And it's a lot of time and money is wasted. And that's sort of similar to what I described earlier about the internal alignment and making sure that you as a team internally are aligned, but you also have to make sure you're aligned with your, your software vendor too. Because a lot of times, you know, if you're a software vendor or an implementer, you're used to just how the software works and how you've seen the software work at other clients, which is an important knowledge base, but it doesn't necessarily align with how this new client or this new organization is going to implement that same technology. It might be totally different. Um, and so you have to make sure you're, I think a lot of times organizations don't, don't articulate clearly enough to the software vendors and the in implementers, what it is they want and need. And so if you, if you're an implementer, as you know, if you're an implementer and client doesn't tell you what they need, you're going to, you're going to start guessing. You're going to start saying, well, here's a great way for the software to handle whatever we think your need is. And then it's incumbent on the, the uh, client to say, yes, that's what I wanted or not. But a lot of times it's just the, the clients don't have a good enough understanding of what it is they want to get out of the system. And then you go live on this new system, all of a sudden they realize, wait, this isn't what we wanted. It doesn't work the way we thought it would. And, you know, so it's easy to blame the vendor in that case, but really you have to look at, well, did you clearly define what you wanted first? Did you, did you sign off on the, on the design? Did you sign off on the testing? Did you get involved in the training? You know, so there's, there's usually a lot of blame to go around. Sometimes it's easier to blame the vendor because, you know, they provide the software, they provide the technical implementation services. It's easy to point your finger at them. But the reality is clients a lot of times are many times equally or even more responsible for success or failure. Perfect. So um, let's move to the final countdown book. Yes. So um, what in, inspired you to write this book? Um, you know, it, it was really, first of all, I've always wanted to write a book just for personal accomplishment purposes. Um, you know, so I've, it's just always been a, a goal of mine. And so, um, right. I turned 50 in 2023 here. And so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm at that age, right. Where I'm 50, if I'm not going to do it now, then, you know, you look not, 40, by the way. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I, I like hearing that. Thank you. Um, but you know, so it was just, it was sort of a good time to, I had been writing it for about a year. So it took about a year, a year and a half to write it. So I knew, 
um, that it was past due. You know, I felt like I've been wanting to do it seriously for about 10 years. And so I thought, you know, I just need to do it. So I thought it was actually really hard for me to write because I didn't know what to focus on at first. So it, when I first started writing it, it was just all over the place because think about writing. If you take all the knowledge you have and you write a book about it, it's, it's hard, right? Because you just have so many different experiences and clients that you've worked with and experiences you've had. So I, I really had trouble focusing, but I had, you know, I had some people help me kind of narrow it down and get an outline that made a little more, more focus. So I focused this one. The final countdown is about digital strategy. So it's really focused on how to prepare and plan for a, a transformation, you know, define what your strategy is, your roadmap and making it fit you as an organization. And then I plan to write other follow-up books to follow up that are more focused on change management or focused on case specific case studies, although there are case studies in this book as well. But I might write a whole book that's just case studies of, you know, examples of, of implementations. So there's other books I want to write, but uh, I think the first one is uh, always the most difficult. And then I'm, I'm already starting to put ideas together, together for my second book. So the final countdown, you... This book is about your whole experience on this industry. It's generic. It's not in a, on a specific topic. It's it's I'd say it's specific to digital strategy and planning. So it's 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 not getting super deep into uh, technologies or uh, it's not getting super deep into specific specific software or program management or anything like that. It's more if you're just starting a journey, it's perfect. It's a great way to sort of think through how to define the right strategy, the right roadmap, the right plan for your organization. So that's why I focus more on the front end and then future books are going to go deeper into change management, into program management, things of that nature. And you can find that book, by the way, at uh, the the third, Yeah, uh, it's thefinalcountdown.com. If you just go to thefinalcountdown.com, that's where you can find more information. Yeah, yeah, we find the book and we will share it 100%. And uh, I will Mm -hmm. need uh, a copy with your signature. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> I, uh, I have a I have a copy right here that I'm prepared <laughs> prepared to sign and send to you. So uh, it's, yeah, it's a thank hard you, cut. thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, so um, <clears throat> moving to uh, our next question, uh, and it is about the vendors. You know, ERP vendors. Um, like like the customer the customers are searching for the vendors also the vendors are searching for customers so do you think that there is because and i'm asking you that because you are a geek on the content and the youtube and the social platforms so do you think as an erp vendor if you will give me an advice what should i do to reach out to customers and and close deals to to get more leads with content you mean specifically or yeah we are doing this content you know the the customer behavior is different right right now it's not like so people 10 20 years ago was doing cold calls yeah um uh, it was knocking the doors going to the customer and, and you know that but now and because you are in working also, and you are focusing on the digital transformation, so you th- do you think that this affect also the sales process? Um, it's it's not that easy. Yeah, it it's not. Um, and creating content can be a grind. It can be difficult because you have to 
it, it's not enough to just occasionally create some videos and then put them out and then you forget about it for a few months and then you come back and do more. You have to be very um, consistent. And it's hard to be consistent when you're just starting out because you don't see you don't see any results right away. I mean, when, I remember when I put my first YouTube videos out, I would get like 12 views or something like that. And I thought, well, it's a little bit discouraging. I, I put all this time into that video and only 12 people saw it. <laughs> but now, you know, that same video that had 12 views. 65,000. Yeah, it's going to have tens of thousands <laughs> now because it, it goes, you know, eventually it, the audience will find it. The beauty of YouTube is that YouTube will find the right audience. No matter how big or small that audience is, YouTube will, the algorithm is very, it's highly effective, I think. It's really good at pushing the content out to people that are looking or potentially interested in that content. Um, and the same, you know, maybe to a lesser degree with podcasts too, you know, podcast platforms are pretty good at pushing, you know, new episodes or new content out to people. And then of course, you know, you share all that stuff on, you can do blogs. It's not just videos. You can do blogs, you can do white papers and that sort of thing. But I think the key to your question about how you convert that content into leads is first of all, you have to play the long game. Um, unless you're unless you're paying for for exposure, like paying for YouTube ads, paying for Google ads, which you can do. Um, I found that to be super expensive and not effective in my opinion. I know a lot of companies do it, so I don't want to, you know, criticize people that have had success with it. We have not had success with it. So we rely more on the organic results. And when you're oh lying the organic God. result, it, really? This yeah, we is don't pay. unbelievable. Yeah, we don't pay for any of that stuff. You you can if 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 you want to get a hundred thousand views on this video right here that we're filming this podcast episode, you can get a hundred views on it pretty easily, pretty quickly. You just have to pay for it. And so, if you don't want to pay for it though, and you don't want to pay an arm and a leg to get a hundred thousand views, you have to create content that people want, and you have to keep creating content that will start to reel people in. It starts to create like a flywheel. You know, the flywheel just starts to speed up, and then it and then it takes off. But sometimes that takes you know, it could take a year or two, three years or more, you know, for it to really get going. I mean, if you look at my YouTube channel now, I mean, I'm getting, you know, a, sometimes a thousand new subscribers a day. It's just that, but it was nowhere like that five years ago, five years ago, I was getting like a subscriber a day, maybe if I was lucky. So, you know, you just have to, but you have to stick with it and then eventually yeah. it'll, it'll take off. But I think the key too, is you don't want to just go viral. You want to your point, you want to get some leads out of it. And some people will inevitably reach out to you naturally. They'll look you up. They'll look up uh, Khaled and say, okay, I like this Khaled guy. I'm going to look up his company. I'm going to reach out to him. Some people will do that. But if you, it's more effective, you'll get more of those people if you say, um, I have a piece of content that you can access, a premium content. Just go to my website, put in your information. You can have it. Um, sort of that free that the free content model where you're, you're providing some initial content that anyone can watch, but then you provide something else that says, here's an even deeper dive into whatever it is. You can go get it for free, download it here, and then that way you get the lead. And then you can reach out to that person and say, hey, I saw you you downloaded my premium content. Um, and then you can start the conversation there. That's that's the that's our secret sauce for our marketing process and approach, <laughs> which I'm happy to share. I don't I don't mind. Yeah, it's really um, it's really interesting because you mentioned organic hundred um, percent. I don't know if hundred percent, but you mentioned that you're not paying uh for ads it's uh, everybody is is doing ads uh, but also as you mentioned so valuable now. yeah it's, it's so expensive um i was talking to a ceo of an, a very big erp company and he told me Khalid, you know um we are paying uh, for each each um application we develop 2 dollars for the development and 10 dollars for the marketing and ads. 
<laughs> wow. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so I believe that, oh, should we work as a marketing team now? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, it, and, and ignore this development and this. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It is. Too much and I, money. It is. And I just, uh, I don't know if I told you this, right, right as we're filming this podcast episode, just in the last few weeks, um, we've launched a, a sister company of ours called uh, Major Tom Productions. And uh, that company is, it owns all the content creation now, basically, that I do. So my YouTube channel, my podcast, we're creating new new podcast series on different segments within technology. And we're, we're taking sponsorships and collaborating with companies that want to get exposure, but they don't, you know, they don't want to pay Google ads. They don't want to pay for YouTube ads or whatever. So we're providing sponsorship opportunities with our content um, starting in 2023, or I'm sorry, in 2024. Um, so that's, that's another option that companies like oh. yours and other, our peers that might be interested in, in uh, you know, reaching a broader audience or getting more exposure without having to wait three or five years or 10 years or whatever it takes to build up the content machine that creates those um, leads on their own. This is so, so smart. Um, and, and we will copy you, by the way. We are copying you. <laughs> I, I yeah. take it as flattery. Uh, I, don't, I don't view it as a threat. I, I, I'm happy to. Uh, to be honest with you, when I sent to you, I said he will not reply to me. But you replied and you accepted the invitation because yeah. all the time I see your videos. Uh, and the, my, the first video that I saw was uh, SAP versus Oracle NetSuite. And oh my God, this guy knows all of that about SAP. <laughs> right. Then I saw that you, you have a very, very uh, perfect professional content about the ERP industry, only the ERP. And, you know, also it's a very niche market. How do you get 60,000 <laughs> people on the YouTube? It's very niche when you have like 1,000, 2,000. Oh my God, you did a very big uh, thing. But when you have 60, that means that your content is valuable. Um, yeah. And uh, that takes me to the next question about the balance of time. So you are doing consultation and also you have this YouTube channel, you have this platforms, those videos, those, this podcast also. How did you balance your, your time uh, to do all of that? Well, a couple of things. First is uh, ever since the very start, um, I would film and create content in batches. So in other words, I, I quickly learned that it's not effective to say, you know, I need a blog for tomorrow. Uh, so I'm going to go write a blog right now and it's going to get published tomorrow. Uh, instead, what I would do is say, okay, I'm going to create four pieces. I'm going to spend half a day today creating four pieces of content or 10 pieces of content or whatever it is. And then that gives me some buffer to, to uh, drip, you know, that new content out to people over time. And if I do that once a month or however long, you know, I can just do it once a month and I carve out half a day to do content creation. And that gives you content to go through the whole month. So if you can break it up into batches to where you're not feeling like you have to take a break every day or every other day or even every week to create new content, you can really focus your time. So I can go back to running my company while new videos continue to come out on my YouTube channel. I'm not creating those videos three or four times a week. Even though I have new three or four new videos every week, I, I already created those a month ago. In one day, I created a ton of it and then I just forgot about it and I went back to running the company. So it, for me, it was a, it's a time management thing. Um, and also, you know, as we've, as a company have grown, I have the, the luxury of having a team now that supports me. So I can create a video 
and just hand it off and someone's going to go edit it, promote it, post it, all that stuff. So it frees me up to, to do what I do. And then of course we have other, our team is, you know, 70 plus people and growing. So there's a lot of people that can help uh, make sure that we're continuing to deliver and do all the other things that need to happen to make the company run. That's really cool. Uh, 70 people, you are managing 70 people and you are doing this content and you are doing the consultation thing. So you, this is unbelievable. Uh, and that, that makes me when I feel that, oh, I'm busy. No, 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 no. <laughs> You're not busy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh, this is, so 70 people, how did, do you think that managing people um, is not that easy thing, especially on the ERP industry or on the digital transformation thing? Do you think that it's it's not that easy to manage 70 people? No, it's not easy. But, you know, when you have a good leadership team that can help you manage those 70 people, you know, I don't have 70 direct reports. I have six maybe six or seven at the most people that re report directly to me. And then those six or seven people manage, you know, the other, you know, 55 people or whatever it is. Um, so that's the key. And I, I think the big thing too, that I learned is if you build a, a very strong culture and you have really a really solid culture, whatever you want it to be, it should reflect you as a leader. I mean, I think you should sort of have it reflect your personality and what, you know, you as a face of a company, you want people to, you don't want to hire a bunch of people that are just like you, but you want to hire people that share the same values, that have the same approach, that have, you know, similar views of the world and, and people you just like being around. If you do that, it doesn't make it easy, but it makes it easier to manage a bigger team. And so, um, you know, I find that there's more, there's actually more autopilot type activities that just, that people are working hard, but I don't have to intervene as much as I did back when we were like 20 people. Um, partly because I feel like we've built such a, such a strong team that they're, you know, we're not perfect, but you know, we, I think we, we just are more aligned than we've ever been. So let me take from your words. You mentioned that, uh, you mentioned the values. So does that mean when you hire somebody, because there's different schools, uh, some people are focusing on the experience, on the talent, even if there is no values even if those people are toxic. He will, right. I, I need, I need this guy. He, he is 10 years experience. He can do one, two, three. It doesn't matter. And there is another school and I am with this school. Uh, it's about the values. So I focus on the values and after that I can um, teach them. I can train them until they be uh, very talented. Which school, uh, do you do you do you believe that it's or do you think the hybrid one is which one? I think it's a, a hybrid, but I'd say if you have um you obviously have to have a minimum level of talent and skill set, right? It but you don't necessarily need to have the best, most talented person to be successful. In fact, I'll take someone who's a better cultural fit, who I think is just gonna get along with our team better and fit with our clients better. Maybe there's someone out there that could be 20 or 30% smarter or 20 or 30% more experienced, but I'll take that person with a lesser experience, not because I want to diminish the value we provide to our clients, but because I know that person's going to fit in better. And as a team, it's going to deliver more value than I, it would if I have a bunch of 
you know, top notch A plus plus players that are all, you know, they don't get along, they don't work well as a team, but they're the smartest people I could find. And I used to do that early in my career, actually, I would find the smartest people I could find. I wanted because I was younger, I was 32 when I started my last company. So I needed people that were 30 years into their career and had, you know, I was trying to compensate for the lack of experience I had. So I would err on too far the side of hiring really talented, really smart people, only to find that sometimes it's bad. You know, sometimes it's actually toxic to have that many really, really top performers all it's just hard for them to work together. And if you look at sports teams too, it's the same thing. A lot of times on mm. paper, they look like, you know, you look at all these yeah. teams throughout the world and soccer and, or football and whatever sport you see, you've seen cases over and over where they had all these all-star players together, but they couldn't win. You know, they couldn't win because they just couldn't operate and function as a team. And I think the same thing is true when you're building a consulting practice or any, any sort of team really, but consulting is so people intensive and it's a service, so you, you have to be even more uh, in, uh, intentional about it. So I think that's, I mean, that's the way I view it. Yeah, this is uh, also so smart from you. Uh, I, I never think about it. I, all the time I'm thinking why uh, there is no team have like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi. <laughs> right, <laughs> But right. if this happened, <laughs> that's a, great example. a lot of that's fights. <laughs> yes, yeah. There, you're not going to win a lot of games. You're going to have a lot of really good talent. You're going to have a lot of good highlight plays, but the team's not yeah. going to win. Yeah, that's that's really smart from you, Eric. That's really smart. So uh, the team here uh, was 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 in 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 the questions. They they uh, they mentioned that there is a game that we will play right now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just to have some fun on this podcast okay. uh, the name of the game is perspective play perspective okay. play uh, so I will share some thoughts and statements for you and you respond okay about Sounds this good. okay so um, the first statement master a skill share it with the world and watch how it turns into wealth. And watch how what it turns into wealth. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, listening. So I'd say asking good questions and listening to the answers. You know, if you're trying to, whatever you do, even if it's not ERP consultant, even if you're a, if you're a salesperson, this is definitely true. It's even more true if you're in sales or some sort of uh, people focused business. But I think if you can ask good questions and listen and understand um, that's going to help you create a lot of wealth because you'll see more opportunity and you'll, you'll learn more about the world in general by asking a lot of really good questions and listening. So I think that's probably, especially in consulting and even in sales too, I think that's the most important thing to create wealth and success, you know, in, in the, especially in these, these industries. Okay, cool. So the next one, focusing on the future can steal your present yeah can it steal your present uh, can, can can steal, steal your, your present yes that's true <laughs> um hmm, that's a really good question i i think you need yeah i think you need i i do agree with that i think it can if you focus too much on the future without understanding where you are and how you got to where you are and what mistakes you've made in the past then yes focusing too much on the future um, you don't want to dilute or, or dismiss 
your current state and how you got there. So yes, I agree. I think you need both. Okay. So uh, perfect. The last one, our feelings can shape our future for better or worse. Yes, I totally agree with that. So if you're, Mm. you know, if you're feeling angry or um, frustrated or sad, that's going to, that, you know, it happens, right? We're humans, so we are going to have negative feelings, but that will affect your future if you hang on to that for too long. So, uh, but if you Mm. focus on optimism and opportunity and happiness and things of that nature, it's it's generally going to lead to, to happiness. Okay, perfect. So this is the game. So before we close this uh, episode, I, I, I still have one or two questions. So okay. um, if we will go back to the converting leads, you and we are talking about the content. So do you believe also that the summits, the trade shows, uh, those events also uh, is good for any company to attend and make relationships uh, meet uh, new um, SMEs, founders, CEOs? Do you believe in that or it's only the digital platform? Everything is digital. No, I think going, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm old fashioned a little bit, but I, I think in person is much better. You just get to know people better and the connections deeper. So, you know, you and I can have this conversation remotely and it's great. I enjoy this conversation and I hope your audience enjoys it too, but <laughs> But if we were in person, this would be an even better conversation um, just because yeah. I could, you could see how I'm reacting. I could see you better. There's something about in person that you just, I don't care what other people say. You don't get it on Zoom. You get, this is better than a phone call for sure, but it's not the same as being in person. So um, yeah, so I think if the more relationships and connections you can build in the space, um, it, it helps to do that. Also, you know, conf- I, I think half the value of conferences is, is the accidental discoveries you make in a conference you accidentally run into someone that you meet that you wouldn't have met on the zoom call or on a on a on a video platform um you know you're at a networking event and you you know you get to know someone that you, those are people you wouldn't meet over over zoom even no matter how hard you try to create a social environment it's just not the same as physically i'm walking to go to the to the men's room let's say and i bump into you and i say oh Khaled, how, how are you my name's eric and we start to meet that just wouldn't happen on a, on a zoom call yeah so uh, meeting people in person uh, is better than that. I am. This makes sense also in this world. You know, people have trust issues also. Um, yeah. So meeting people and uh, dealing with them face to face is better. Um, I'm also hundred percent with you on that. So uh, your insights are invaluable, and uh, I really learn from you. Thank you so much, Eric. And thank you to our listeners. Don't forget to check out Eric's book and YouTube channel for more insights. Yes, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.